He's a gifted writer, storyteller, and journalist. He captured my voice as the co-author of my book, For Allison. And now he provides a voice for the curators at the Virginia Museum of Natural History. I want to welcome my friend, Ben Williams, to The Cultural Scavenger. Ben is one of the best writers I have ever seen and read. And he was my co-writer on my one and only book for Allison. Just did a marvelous job, and I'm just excited to have you here on the program. For years, you were a newspaper reporter for the Martinsville Bulletin. So let's start with that, Ben. Uh, what was some, what were some of the craziest things you ever covered? Oh, man. Let me think here. Well, first off, uh, thanks so much for, uh, for having me on the show, and thank you for the kind words. I'm excited to be a part of it. There, there were a lot of interesting experiences at the, the Martinsville Bulletin. I was there for um, six and a half years. You know, one of the, the interesting things about working at a small town newspaper, at one point, at least back in the day in the, the newspaper business, um, reporters had beats. Uh, this was back before newspapers decided to uh, fire all of their writers. Right. So that and covered, you know, everything. Even back in the day, you had that with small town newspapers where, you know, you might have to cover multiple different topics. So it, it was always quite surreal to, uh, you know, go from you know, a meth lab explosion and asking the sheriff about, you know, where they found the, the cook's head uh, to <laughs> hunt or something. You know, it was this this tonal whiplash um, got to experience quite often. Um, I, I think one of the most memorable experiences I had there was a house fire and it was out in uh, the middle of nowhere in Fieldale and this just happened to coincide with the polar vortex so it was about six seven degrees outside and so I had to go you know drive out and cover this house fire and I get there as a surreal experience um, because you know, everything is covered in ice. The firefighters, you know, wearing their, their turnout gear, they're just encrusted with ice. And they're spraying this house, and half of the roof is, you know, just an inferno. And the other half is solid ice. You know, I've never seen anything like it. And that is the only time in my life I've ever thought, not just, boy, I'm cold, this is very uncomfortable, but I'm so cold, I may die tonight. <laughs> uh, I... I not get any pictures because my hands were shaking so badly that I, I couldn't hold the camera. Um, I was out there for about half an hour on my way back to my car. Uh, I reached up to scratch my face and snapped off half of my mustache. <laughs> you, you had a, a, it was a vision of hell. Yeah. Oh my God. It was, it was awful. I got back. I remember just sitting, you know, sitting in the office shivering and, uh, um, you know, our, our staff photographer, Mike Ray, he was asking, you know, Ben, why, why are all these pictures so blurry? I'm like, <laughs> hold my hand. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, I felt, I felt fortunate working there because, um, you know, not to do much shade, but I got to work at the Bulletin while it was still a, a privately owned business. Yeah. Um, 
I got to work with some really great folks with a whole lot of institutional knowledge. And then I got to experience uh, corporate journalism uh, after the paper was bought out. And the less said about that, the better. <laughs> yeah, well, and it's it's an epidemic that's going on with local newspapers. I mean, it's, it's all across the country. It's not just the bulletin. I mean, they, they have just cut staff everywhere you look. I remember before I knew you, there was a, a greasy spoon in Martinsville called Garfield's. Indeed. And and it was notable for its pot roast. Every Thursday there was, you know, they had pot roast. And it was just it was outstanding. I mean, it was just you talk about comfort food, it was great. And I remember seeing you. It was this was gosh, probably fifteen years ago. And I guess it was before you had joined the paper, but I just remember there you are smoking a cigarette in the, that was back when you could still smoke in a restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> what is this kind of like pretending to be a writer and pretending to be cool? Well, no, you weren't. You, you were actually a real writer and a, <laughs> it was, it was quite the vision. Had that happened to me uh, a couple of times in life. I've got a good friend in Roanoke who, uh, told me like a couple of years into our friendship, he said, you know, before I knew who you were, I vividly remember seeing you at the sushi restaurant and me and my girlfriend at the time just sat there making fun of you. (laughs) (laughs) That's what, that's what Adam Tomer and I did. We were like, who is this guy? (laughs) (laughs) What a pretentious asshole. (laughs) But you weren't being a pretentious asshole. You were being, the real asshole. No, I'm the real asshole. You were just being the the, the real guy. Oh man, what? Try to uh, you know go out into public as as little as possible. I just don't. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, since this is a a podcast, and and now you're you're sitting in your pinball room in the dark. So I guess that that maybe that's an appropriate response for for those that don't know Ben and, and maybe have seen pictures of he's a big imposing guy he, he can be a little intimidating I guess uh, until you get to know him but uh, getting back to the paper I remember that one of your duties at the paper is you had to edit I guess the letters to the editor correct uh, yes <laughs> Sorry to bring this up, but but it's the maybe the bulletin has changed their policy. But a guy named Danny Clifton, I think he lived in some trailer park that he never left it, but he would write a letter to the editor at least once a week, maybe more. Give me that Danny Clifton connection because it's pretty it, funny. It's yeah. you, Bartleby the Scribner. You know. Editing the the letters to the editor was less a job than a divine punishment of some kind. <laughs> Danny, and I've never talked to him in person. He's probably a, a perfectly nice guy. But he would, he would send in a letter per week. And the only reason he sent in a letter per week was because before I started, a policy was instituted of one letter per week because of him. Um, <laughs> he had been sending in multiples. He was prolific. Uh, uh, very prolific. But he wrote, I want to say at the time I left, he had had more than 400 letters published. Oh, my God. Between those 400 letters, there were perhaps three ideas. They, they tended to fall into the category of love is a wonderful thing. 
what was the the other big one? Oh, death. Uh, that was the other one. It was it was either love or death. Each letter could have just ended with you know, well, don't forget the grim specter follows us all, folks. They're the most depressing letters I'd ever seen. <laughs> have you ever wondered? Yeah. <laughs> and about was, love or death. Yeah, think about it, folks. You know, oh yeah, that thing. was a think about it. Yeah, that was the other tag. But there there was a particular punishment to your attachment to Danny, and what was that? Oh, I'm trying to remember this. Oh, well, it, the the punishment was, you know, most people will email what they send to the paper. You had to transcribe. That's what the, that's where the Bartleby the Scrivener came from because you had to transcribe every one of his handwritten letters, correct? All handwritten had to transcribe every one. We had few letter writers. Um I will say there were some that uh Danny would take it out of me, but he probably wasn't the worst of the letter writers. There were some who uh, would just espouse beliefs that basically send in a letter to the editor advocating war crimes, you know. <laughs> why, why <can't... laughs> yeah, you really got to see into the dark side of humanity editing the, the letters to the editor. And that was before the, the, the cult of Trump. Yeah, I, I left the bulletin December of 2018, so I... I got a little bit of the uh, the Trump cult experience, yeah. and uh, I, I remember um, there was one letter, which I, I refused to run it, because the guy, it was after the Charlottesville incident, the guy, I think he was going off on the mayor of Charlottesville or something, and I had to call the guy on the phone, I'm like, man, you, know, you don't have all your facts straight, and I was like, the, these people were white supremacists. He's like, oh, well, I didn't see anything about that. I'm like, dude, they were chanting blood and soil. He's like, well, I didn't hear anything about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's like the uh, storm, the storming the Capitol. Oh, you know, they were hugging police officers. I, so, how was that one uh, resolved? Uh, that, that one was pretty much a stalemate. Um, he was, he was finally just like, oh, yeah, fine, don't run my letter, you damn liberal. And like, okay, <laughs> so I was accused of being you know, multiple times and, you know, got some death threats. It's, you know, <laughs> really, jeez. Did you ever have the desire to go to a larger market as a, as a journalist or you've got the talent. And I, if I've told you this that once I've told you a hundred times, I appreciate that. And to be honest, I never really did. And part of it was I sort of fell backwards into the journalism thing. Previously, my, my previous job before that, I'd been the uh, manager of a, a uh, very small playhouse in Roanoke called Studio Roanoke. And that had the bad fortune of opening right as the uh, the Great Recession, or at least the great last Great Recession, was um, ramping up. So it kind of struggled and ultimately had to shutter its doors in 2012. So, yeah, I went back home. I was going to you know just hang out at home for a while as I figured out my next move. And uh, I... Through an application at the bulletin at the time, I was it was for the accent assistant, mm -hmm. you know, typing up wedding announcements and things like that. And to my surprise, I was I was hired and uh, pretty quickly moved from accent to uh, the news desk because I I can't write a wedding announcement to save my life. I have no idea. <laughs> no, that makes any sense. But um, yes, I just kind of fell backwards into it. I'd never really considered a career in journalism and uh you know i enjoyed it but i i think fiction has always been my my true love 
Mm -hmm. And when I get home at the end of the day, it's, it's not like when you're in journalism where you're writing all day long. Last thing you want to do when you get right. I feel like I have more ideas coming back, more, more irons in the fire on the fiction perspective. Now you left in 2018, you left the glamor of the newsroom and, and you moved on, you accepted a job with the Virginia museum of natural history as a science administrator. You, have created a popular Facebook series called Ben in Nature. So tell us about that gig. Yeah, I I love working at the museum. Um, it is a fantastic place to work. I, you know, get along great with literally everyone in the building. But that was that was a really cool opportunity that came up. And, you know, I've always always had an interest in the the natural world you know when i was a kid i was always one of the people who all the other kids are beating each other with sticks and i'm i'm hanging out at the creek trying to catch a crawfish that was just always been interested in bugs and stuff like that but i never really considered a career in the sciences because uh, math frightens me you know i very quickly realized like if i were to pursue anything in biology i would quickly hit that brick wall but now I sort of have the best of both worlds. You know, I get to work with the scientists and I can a big part of my job is sort of helping them communicate what they're doing to the public. So a lot of it is writing. But at the same time, you know, I can get my hands dirty. Um, went on a field trip up to the home of a lady in Patrick County, only about six miles from my house and did a little bio blitz on her property, went out poking around and seeing what uh, insects and salamanders we could find. And you know, it's a, Really great uh, intersection of a, a couple of interests. And you don't have to uh, crunch numbers. Yeah, no, very little math. It's fantastic. <laughs> now, you've got uh, a few side gigs and interests, uh, including, as we alluded to earlier, you're sitting there in a darkened pinball room. You're, In fact, you're somewhat of an authority, besides being a, an aficionado. It's a funny thing. I've, I've started doing as sort of a... Side job, I do freelance pinball repairs. I, I have 10 pinball machines, and a lot of people, friends, think I've lost my mind. But, you know, I, I was thinking about it kind of philosophically one day, and it was like, why why pinball? It was something I'd always enjoyed. And I realized I got my first machine in the summer of 2017, right in the early days of the Trump presidency. And it suddenly clicked with me. There's something very appealing about taking a machine that represents a tiny world with very well-defined rules, kind of a, a metaphorical appeal to the pinball repair on that. And you've got 10, 10 machines that are in working order, and you how do you spend your time in the pinball room, just going from one machine to another? Oh, yeah, just yeah, you see which one catches your eye, you know, go over it and try to, try to give them all equal love if possible. But... Uh, <laughs> But yeah, all all uh, all in working order. They How old are these things? Are they even making pinball machines anymore? I Actually know. they are. um in in fact we're kind of in the middle of a uh, pinball renaissance right ah. now. There was the industry nearly collapsed in the around like 2009-2010 and then uh came roaring back, new manufacturers have popped up. But uh yeah, all the stuff I have, my oldest machine is from 79, uh, newest one is from 1988. That deaf, dumb, and blind kid could sure play a mean pinball. 
and, and which reminded me of Bally. Are they are they still in the uh, in the pinball uh, that, business? Sadly, uh, Bally is no longer in the pinball, business, but uh, do have a couple of Bally machines. Oh, okay. Well, nobody knows where you live, so I, if you don't don't mind me asking, I mean, what is what is a pinball machine? A you know one of the like the one of the Bally machines. What is that worth? There's a wide range depending on the machine, but some of the older ones, low end, you're probably looking at about fifteen hundred. Mm-hmm. Um, high end, some of the old ones can go up to ten thousand. Wow. Uh, you know, a brand new machine is probably going to cost eight to ten thousand, which is a big part of the reason I learned to do my own work on them. Well, and that was my next question: how much, how reliable are they, and how robust are they? I would probably be tilting them a lot. And how does, <laughs> how much work do you have to do on them to keep them up? You know, there's a lot of work at first, um, you know, just going through and, and repairing some of the old electronics and old capacitors and, you know, parts that are, are going to wear out over time. But uh, once you do all that initial work, they're they're decently reliable. You know, there's always a certain amount of maintenance you have to do, but um, especially on what's basically a 40 year old computer. But no, they, once once you sort of solve a lot of the the initial problems when you first get one they're pretty reliable which is why I, i'm always looking for machines that somebody's offloading cheap because something's wrong with it that they can't figure out pick it up on the cheap so you are also a playwright don't you participate annually in like a three-day script writing contest yeah there are a few um few projects like that I do. There's the three-day novel contest. That's out of Canva. I've done that every year since 2007. It's it sort of shrunk in recent years, and that's part of the reason I keep doing it, because I hope, you know, the, the smaller the pool of applicants gets, the better my chances of winning. <laughs> yeah, I've been doing that since 2007. You have, you know, small entry fee. You uh, have Labor Day weekend, you know, 72 hours to uh, write a novella you know about fifteen thousand words twenty thousand words right i've yet to win but i've gotten in like the top 10 on two occasions and this is a national Uh, contest correct yeah international oh wow well if you get in the top 10 that's that ain't bad well yeah and, and not surprising you haven't left the newspaper business completely because you write a weekly column for the henry county enterprise which is i guess sort of a uh, the the brainchild of a couple of your former colleagues at the Bulletin, correct? Yes. Debbie Hall was a reporter at the uh, Martinsville Bulletin, and she ended up being one of the guiding forces, you know, in creating this new paper that covers Henry County and Martinsville. And so I think from issue two on, you know, when I left the, <laughs> when I left the Martinsville Bulletin, um, I asked them if they wanted to keep running my weekly column and, you know, just throw me a little bit of money and uh they were disinterested in that so but then <laughs> so uh i got to uh move on to the henry county enterprise and it's the best journalism experience i can imagine i write my weekly column i send it to her she doesn't change anything publishes it and then i get a check in the mail it's that's all i've ever wanted <laughs> That's pretty easy. And the pieces are really funny. You're a playwright, but you're also a humorist. You can get Henry County Enterprise online, correct? Yeah, Yeah, it is. Okay. Uh, Subscribe to a print edition as well. 
Yes. At a convenience store near you. As far as the, the theater stuff goes, um, yeah, I guess that, that's been a very, a hugely important uh, part of my writing career and opened a lot of the opportunities that I've since gotten. Um, I kind of fell into that in an interesting way when I was in college. I went to Roanoke College. I guess summer of 2006, I had been working on some stand-up comedy material. So I was looking for a venue in Roanoke that would do stand-up comedy. And there weren't any, but I found this place called No Shame Theater, which took place on the, the small stage, the Waldron stage at Mill Mountain Theater downtown, created by a fellow named Todd Ristoff, who lived at Roanoke. And, uh, and every Friday night, you would show up at 11, there would be uh, 15 slots, and you would, you know, if you had a piece, you would sign on. The only rules for the piece was that it has to be five minutes or less. It has to be legal in the state of Virginia to do, and you can't break anything. So uh, break the stage, couldn't break yourself, couldn't break members of the audience. So very lenient. And uh, I I don't know if I missed more than three or four no-shames. It was every week. I don't know if I missed more than three or four between the summer of 2006 and sometime in 2010. I did it religiously, just writing comedy monologues, comedy sketches, poems, all kinds of crazy stuff. You know, and that led to um, me ending up. I had two plays produced uh, around that time, 2010 or 2009 and 2011, I think. And since then, you know, I've, I've still been involved with theater in Roanoke. Every year I do um, Overnight Sensations, uh, which is a 24-hour playwriting festival mm-hmm. they uh, have at the Mill Mountain Theater. So, uh, yeah, very grateful for a lot of the opportunities that opened and that, that experience, just getting to new material and present it to a live audience every single week, like clockwork, um, I think really honed my skills in a way that few things could. And in uh, 2019, you became a published author. Yes, I did. Uh, with uh, co-writing with me on my book for Allison. And it's interesting because when I knew that I needed help with this, I, you know, I figured I'm a decent writer. As long as you can put a couple of sentences together and you polish your skills, you can go from a, you know, a decent writer to a good writer. Going from good to great, like a Stephen King or an Ernest Hemingway, that's a leap that I knew that I wasn't going to, to get to. And I needed your help to make that piece sing, which you did. What was the experience like for you working Uh, with me? (laughs) That's an excellent question. Well, you were very easy to work with. Um, Well, that's good to know. Yeah. uh, (laughs) uh, Your, your results may vary, but in my case, you know, know, having said that, I, I have to say that was probably, I mean, easily, the most difficult writing project I have ever undertaken. You know, I, I think the biggest part of that, I'd never done anything like that. You know, I'd done journalism at that point, obviously, but I'd never undertaken a project where I was working on something in someone else's voice. So a big part of that, you know, while working on the book, uh, which was kind of a whirlwind experience, you know, I think I, I took a lot of time off. Um, mm-hmm three weeks i mean just like locked in the house just hammering every day and 
just having to basically say, all right, you know, I'm going to try to put myself in the shoes of my friend Andy during the worst experience of his life. I'm sure that what I felt was a, a millionth of, of what it was actually like, but at the same time, it took a toll. I mean, it, it was very, very difficult to do. But, you know, I was certainly very happy with the results, and I'm certainly glad that you were happy with the results. You did capture my voice and articulated my feelings and what I wanted to convey better than I could. I appreciate that. You know, that that was an interesting sort of, it was a circuitous route. It really was. I think, you know, that ties into probably the best piece of advice I could give an aspiring writer would be uh, don't burn any bridges because, you know, I, I remember very vividly when you called me and, you know, there was a point where we sort of thought that, well, we'll just move forward with me as co-writer. And then your agent wanted to use this ghostwriter she knew. Yeah. And, and obviously, you know, we were both disappointed, but at the same time, I'm thinking like, well, if I were a high-powered New York City literary agent and my options were this guy I've worked with before and is a known quantity. Or, or Ben Williams, who I don't know him from Adam. <laughs> yeah, this guy. You're like, I would have, she made the smart choice, but it ultimately didn't work out. But I, I was very glad that when it came time for sort of a, a reimagining of what the book would be that I, I hadn't sent her any dead flowers or anything. Yeah. And uh, as it turned out, I, I think I mentioned to you at the time, uh, the publisher paid you to edit, spiff it up. And uh, I jokingly said at the time, well, you may be the only person that makes any money off of this. And I think I was, <laughs> that was a very prescient statement because you were the only person that made any money on it. <laughs> I, it sold decently. I, I, I wish it had sold more. Yeah, it's such a good, good book, and I, I think it has long legs. Well, so. let's let's hope so. And you know, would it have been great to make a lot of money on a book? Yeah, it would. But that's not the reason that I wrote it. It was uh, it was a labor of love, and proud to say that. Yeah, I'm a published author too. So we definitely both learned firsthand that the publishing industry of today is a very strange and difficult place to navigate. It really is. Let me ask you this. Where do you see Ben Williams 10 years from now? What do you want to do yeah. when you grow up? Yeah. <laughs> I see myself just continuing to uh, to write things and, and hopefully uh, uh, publish things. Yeah, that's, you know, really my my main goal. I, I, that, that's been my goal uh, since I was a little kid and uh, sort of I've, I've always known that's what I want to do. I'm looking forward to keeping on that path. Thank you again for being my collaborator, and thanks for joining me on the program. Been, it's been fun, I've, as always. Always great talking with you, Ben. And always good talking to you, Andy. Thanks for having me on. You bet, buddy. Take care. Well, that's the story. A special acknowledgement to Marianne Kennedy, Pat Bunch, and Pam Rose for allowing me to use their music from Safe in the Arms of Love, a song Allison loved. If you liked what you heard, please share my podcast with your friends. And while you're at it, why not subscribe? And I'd sure appreciate a great rating in Apple Podcasts, too. I'm Andy Parker, and I'll be here next week with another episode of The Cultural Scavenger. Thanks for listening. 